Father, we praise you for the wisdom and insight, for the grace and mercy that is so obviously applied on the pages of the book of Leviticus. Thank you, Lord, for giving it to us. And I thank you ahead of time for what you're going to teach us tonight. For the practicality of it, Father, and for the way you just reach into our hearts every single time we open this book up and touch our lives. Father, would you do it again tonight? Would you teach us that we might walk out of here with more wisdom, more of you, more of your Holy Spirit, and more ready, Father, to enter into your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking today, I'm going to be uh, talking a little bit after the first of the year about the Holy Spirit, which will be very interesting and exciting um, a topic. That will come in January. But I was just thinking today, how many people, and let me just get a show of hands, how many of you um, would like more of the Lord in your life? You'd like more of the Lord. Okay, I'm really glad to see 100% because there's, you know, if there's ever the one person who doesn't raise their hand, they're, you know, like, okay, I guess I'll have some more of the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Let me do another show of hands. How many of you have had just about enough of the Lord? You've had enough. You really don't want more. In fact, you'd really like to back off a little bit. Too much God. See nobody. I think that's great. We all want more of the Father, don't we? We want more of Jesus. We want more of His Spirit in our lives. And it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with the Lord. Those of you who are somewhat new in your faith, hear me on this. The longer you walk in the Lord, the more the hunger grows for more of the Lord. It's an amazing thing. There are plenty of things in our lives that we don't want more of. I never cease to want more of the Lord. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And He gives us, again, page by page, verse by verse, more and more and more of Himself. We're in Leviticus 24 tonight. I want to remind you that we're, again, in an interesting place. The sandwich between chapters 23 and 25 is chapter 24. Amen. It's an, thank you. Can I get another amen for that? It's just a, it's the spiritual truths and insights just flow, you know. 24, but it's a strange chapter because in the middle of chapter, well, chapter 23, as we're studying on Sunday mornings, rejoicing in the feasts, the seven feasts of Israel, God proclaims, these are the feasts, these are the times of celebration, of commemoration and anticipation. And in chapter 25, oh, we're going to see that wonderful time of jubilee that God proclaims. Freedom in the truest sense. And then there's good old chapter 24. And the part of chapter 24 we're going to cover tonight to finish up the chapter, verses 10 through 23, is heavy stuff. Let's read this together. Beginning in verse 10, Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the sons of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other, scuffled, if you will, in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and curse. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shalomith, or Shalomith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, 
then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. You know, if that were the case today, I don't think our country would survive. I'm not sure there'd be a man or woman standing. All the congregation shall surely stone him. (laughs) There wouldn't be anyone left to do the stoning. We'd all be throwing stones at each other. (laughs) The alien, he says, as well as the native, an important point because this guy was half Egyptian, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. He goes on, if a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. Now, the Lord has said this before. He's returning now to something he said, and now we have practical, literal application. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Wow. (laughs) This is serious business. The name of the Lord he takes extremely seriously. And just because someone can cry out, Oh my! Today, and nothing happens, doesn't mean that it's any less important to the Lord that His name, His name, is honored, is revered, is upheld. Now, going back to the beginning of this and thinking through this, I want to kind of work our way through these verses and consider just a few things tonight. One of the things we often don't think about is the extent of Egyptian influence on the Israelites. You may consider, okay, well they were in Egypt for 400 years, so we know they took along some idols, and we know that they probably had some customs and some culture and some things that they did. We forget about the fact that after 400 years, there probably was quite a bit of intermarriage that went on. Young Israelite boy sees an Egyptian girl. You know, with the makeup and all the, you know, I mean, it probably was attractive. So you have some intermarrying going on. An Israelite girl ends up betrothed, obviously, in this case, to an Egyptian, an Egyptian husband. And then they're bearing, bearing children. And now you've got a problem in Israel. Before God ever gets Israel out on their own and begins to try and sanctify them, you've got mixture going on. You've got Israelite children and and Egyptian children marrying and now having half Egyptian, half Israelite children, and it's in the camp. It's in the camp. Now we've said over and over, especially in the book of Exodus, we use this phrase quite a bit, that it's one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of the people. That's a great phrase to remember. And it applies so perfectly to the way we live in the world. It's one thing to get the people out of the world, but it's another thing to get the world out of the people. I think when we come to Christ, we get out of the world. We step out. 
We step into the new world of faith. The new life, the new creation in Christ. But boy, it's tough to get the world out of us. That's what we spend the rest of our lives doing. That's the process of sanctification, consecration. Not again, by the way, so that we can purchase our grace to get into heaven. That's what God gave us when we were saved. His salvation, His grace, our salvation. We have that. But the process of sanctification is growing in that. Deepening that faith. Getting the world out of us. But Egypt, Egypt was still very present in the life of Israel, even here at Mount Sinai and as they would journey forward. And Shilomith, the daughter of Debri, the tribe of Dan, had apparently married an Egyptian. And now her son, part Egyptian, part Jew, is there with her in the camp of Israel. And it's likely there were many such cases. But you've got to ask the question, so how do you get the Egypt out of you when your very offspring, that which you produce, has Egyptian blood? Indeed, how do we get the world out of us when the things that we so often produce have a worldly nature to them? The things that we do, that, that we end up tied to or connected to. But we get into business relationships with the world. And then we try to extricate ourselves. It's a good word. Use it in a sentence. Extra, pull ourselves out of the world. But man, we got a business connection. That's a tie to the world. Or a marriage. I know if I just love her enough, I will love her right into the kingdom. Let me just tell you, those of you who are not married yet, a, a little truth about marriage... If she ain't the way you want her to be before you get married, she ain't going to be the way you want her to be later. Okay? It ain't going to happen. You're not going to change. You're not going to be the Messiah. None of us have it in us. So pick the one that you want before, you know, you end up with what you got. And there are a lot of people who ended up with what they got. It wasn't pretty. And they would tell you what I'm telling you right now, even if it sounds a little strange. Turn in your Bibles quickly, if you will, to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Chapter 6. I hope this verse is becoming somewhat familiar to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Let's read exactly what Paul writes. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Where he says, and I quote, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now we immediately think that's marriage, but gang... He says, do not be bound together. That is a connection. Yes, marriage, and that's probably the big one. But in other ways, how we tie ourselves, connect ourselves to the unbelieving world. And you're thinking, well, Rick, that's not realistic. Hang with me. Paul says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now here's the thing. Paul says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Does that mean if I bind myself to an unbeliever, I am now, I've lost sanctification? No, as a matter of fact, God in His immense grace says, 
in another place, if you are married to an unbeliever, that marriage, not the unbeliever, but that marriage is, in God's eyes, sanctified. Because you are a believer. Which is a good thing. It's God's grace extending beyond you to the person in that married relationship. But Paul still says, I'm just telling you the way it is, it's not a good idea. It's just not a good idea. And again, those of you who have gone through it, who have had marriages go south because one of you believed, one of you didn't, could stand up and testify over and over and over, don't do it. Don't do it. How many times have I heard on the radio people call in to talk to Dr. Laura about interfaith marriages? Not a big Dr. Laura fan, but I've heard it a lot. I was when we were living in California. And, you know, she over and over just would get on to people. You know, you've got a Jewish person marrying a Christian person. You have a Muslim marrying a Jewish... Well, that probably wouldn't happen. But you have, you know, all, all kinds of intermarriage going on. Interfaith marriage and conflict and strife and problems. And so the Lord says, come out of their midst. Now you may say, okay, well, what if I don't? Can I not be a Christian, a believer in Jesus? And still connect myself with someone who is a business partner, for example, who doesn't believe? Don't I, can't I do that? I'm strong in my faith, and I think you can. Sure. You have that right, that freedom, you can do that. But listen again to what God says at the end of this. As, as Paul now not talking, it's the Lord talking, Paul quoting God. He says, I want you to come out, and he says, quote, I will dwell, verse 16, in them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He says, therefore, come out from their midst, and be separate, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And here's the promise, here's the guarantee. If you will come out from the world, if you will detach, as it were, if you will disassociate yourself, if you will not bind yourself to the things of the world, what is the promise? I'll be your father and you shall be sons and daughters to me says the almighty oh so I'm not a son of God if I don't detach from the world I didn't say that what I'm saying is this the children who desire closeness with the father are the ones who have that parent-child relationship that is unmatched we all have them in our families we all have the one nutcase you know maybe it's you but we, there's always in every family there's one who kind of tends to go off. And what, what happens is you see this go on, and my family's perfect, but a lot of your families, I, I know these problems are there. What happens when, when one child, say in a family, says, I'm going to do things my way, I'm not going to be like the rest of you, and causes strife and stirs it up, what ends up happening is that child, that child isn't as much of a child anymore. Isn't the son or the daughter. It, it's hard for the parent to show the love when the child is always doing this push away I don't want the relationship when the child writes off the parent or when the child is so involved in their life that going home for Christmas or hanging out at, at mom and dad's house is just a pain well that person is not going to have the kind of father-son relationship or father-daughter relationship that they would have if they were in the family if their focus was the family. And that, I believe, is what the Lord is saying. Don't be bound together with the things of the world. If you do, it doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. It may be hard for you. It may be more of a challenge for you in your life. But if you will bind yourself to brothers and sisters in Christ, if you will bind yourself to me, if you will come out of the world and come out of the midst and be here, we will have 
a father-son, father-daughter relationship that is wonderful. And that's what God wants for us. And so come out of the world. Come out of the world. So, so what, we just write the world off? No. Be in the world. But don't be of the world. We live in this world, obviously. And our focus in involving ourselves in anyone's life who is not a believer in Christ is that they might become a believer in Christ, that they might join the family, that they might be a child of the Father as well. That's our hope, our desire. But it's awfully hard to come out from their midst when the things we reproduce in our lives are of Egypt, are of a worldly nature. Just like Shilomi, she produces a son who is half Egyptian, and what happens? Tragedy. Problems. It all just begins with a scuffle. Let's go back there. Leviticus 24. Part of the problem here is that something produced in, or at least of, Egypt now brings consternation for the people of Israel, and they don't know what to do with it. See, they had heard teaching. They had heard the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. You shall not take my name in vain. He makes it very clear. They knew some of these other things, the law of reciprocation, although this is the first time where someone just blaspheming God is punished by death. So they're looking at the situation, they're going, wait a minute, we've got, we got a problem here. There's not an easy answer to this one. This is confusing. Here, here's a son who is, he's not completely Israelite. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, you know it's passed along through the mother, so he could be considered fully Jewish. But he still is half Egyptian. So they're saying, well, Lord, what do we do? He's half alien, half among us. He's part us and part not. How do we deal with this guy? Very interesting because there are many times in our lives when we are in the same place. Something happens and we're confused. We don't know what to do with it. Let me ask this question. How many of you in the past month have had a moment when you truly had no idea what to do? Let's show of hands. Okay, so most of us. Some of you always know what to do, and God bless you, I'm going to be calling you more, because, because I don't know what to do half the time. Things go on, and it's confusing. Well, that's what's going on here. They don't know what to do. I think this is a perfect application for us, because what they do is what we need to do. What they do, how they handle the situation, is exactly the answer to what we should do when we don't know what to do. But before we get there, let me tell you one other thing. It's interesting. The problem here is the cursing of the name of God. The blasphemy of the name. Now, in Jewish circles, rabbis actually will use this story and specifically this verse. Verse 11, the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. And they use this verse... For the reasoning behind not speaking the name of God at all. You don't say Yahweh or Jehovah. You don't speak the actual name. In fact, they will say the name. In talking about God, they refer to him as the name. As opposed to saying his name. Why? Because they say, well, see right here. There's a problem with the blasphemy of the name, the cursing. And this, this, these two words, they don't see necessarily the negative, con- um, the negative connotation. For the word translated blasphemy, though it normally does have a negative, also means to express. And so the rabbis over the years have said, see, he expressed the name. He just spoke the name of God. That was the problem. The problem was that he spoke the name. And because he spoke the name, he was cursed. No, it's much more than that. Much more than that. The word blasphemy is nakab in the Hebrew. It means literally to puncture or to poke holes into, which would mean the crucifixion was the ultimate blasphemy. To puncture. To puncture the name. To let the glory out of the name. 
The word curse is kalal and it means to make light of. And so you get a picture of, here's this happy Egyptian struggling with an Israelite, and as they're fighting and scuffling, he pushes them back and he goes, your God is nothing. And he begins to roll out curses. He begins to make light of the name. He begins to puncture the name of God. And so the people have a problem. What do we do? How do we handle this? I, I have been learning something slowly. But I have been learning it through working in church over the years. And I'm going to give it to you this way. And I think it's a very powerful and potent statement. You may want to write this down. If you want God's will to work, if you want God's will to work, don't be a knee jerk. Isn't that great? The depth of theology in some of these statements. If you want God's will to work, don't be a knee jerk. In other words, the worst response is the quick response when you've got a problem to deal with. I, I guess as, as you get older, you kind of start to realize that part of it is you just react more slowly than you did when you were younger. But you start to realize those quick responses, those knee-jerk reactions, end up causing you more problems than if you had taken time to consider the situation, to think it through, to process it. Look at this, verse 12. It's a great verse. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. This is what they did, the response. We don't know what to do. He's half Egyptian, half Israelite. He has blasphemed the name. We're not sure how to handle this. We know we're not supposed to do this. What do we do, Lord? Someone picks up a stone and just starts chucking at it? No. We say, I just let him off? No. They put him in custody. They slow down and they approach the Lord. They wanted to know, Father, what do you want to do? What is your will here? The word is mishmar. It's a great word, mishmar. And the word custody, it literally means to put under guard. Put it under guard. In other words, take the situation, the frustration, the consternation, whatever's going on, and you don't know what to do with it, and instead of reacting immediately, put it under guard and seek the Lord. Put it under guard and seek the Lord. I'm going to set this aside for a moment. Now, if you have children, you may have used this with your kids. You go to your room. And half the reason you send them to their room is not so they can be punished by having to go to their room. It's so that you won't kill them on the spot. <laughs> you need to get out of my face because right now I'm not going to deal real well with you. Hayden was sitting at dinner tonight and I had to send him away from the table. You know? Oh, somebody's calling. That's okay. Is it a Christmas tree? <laughs> it's the world of the cell phone. <laughs> anyway, back to the fascinating story. Hayden was sitting at the table and he was just squirrely and squirming. And I, I told him five or six times, stop messing around and eat your food. And he's, you know, his fork is a spaceship and he's kicking his chair out and he's pulling the chair over sideways. So he's in a little dungeon in there and he's just having a great time. And over and over I'm telling him, and I was telling my folks about this earlier, the thing about my son is he is, he is a really good kid. But he goes right up to that line and he teeters there. One inch more and he would deserve the spanking of his life. But he never goes that extra inch. And there are times I pray, Lord, could you just push him a little bit so that I can spank him? Because he's got to learn here. But he just gets right there and he gives that little cute little look at it. So finally the night I said, go to your room. Leave the table, you're done. His happy eating plate of food, you know, the puppy dog face, and he takes it over to the counter and, you know, puts it halfway on the counter so it's leaning off, you know, hanging there. No, put it all the way. 
earthly son and then sheepishly kind of makes his way downstairs half of the reason I had to do that part of it was he needed the punishment just to be sent away half of it was I was about to lose it and I didn't need to be yelling at him now that's a silly situation we deal with much more serious and stressful situations in our life every day don't we and when you raise your hand and said yeah I've had a situation I didn't know what to do with recently I'm sure if we just took a moment you could all write down exactly what it was and maybe for many of you you still don't know what to do with it and the Lord would say and I believe we can learn from this passage set it aside put it under guard and seek the Lord Lord what do you want to do with this Rather than going off or freaking out or losing it, I was watching, um, I have to admit this to you, I was watching Jerry Maguire in the movie. But I was watching it on TV, so it was, you know, all the bad stuff, you know, the language, everything's gone. Funny movie. And there's a point in the movie where if you've seen it or you know about it, you don't have to admit it tonight, and we can talk about it later in counseling. But he, he has just been fired from his job. And I love the scene because he walks out and he's got his computer and his briefcase and everything, and he goes... I know, I know. And everybody's all in there just watching him. And it's a tense and very uncomfortable moment. The whole crowd is working. They're watching Jerry Maguire. He comes walking out. He goes, I know. It's okay. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm fine. I know you all think I'm just about to freak out. You know? And it's really funny. You got to see that. But watch the TV version. Anyway, what we tend to do, what our hearts want to do, what our human sin nature wants to do is react. I got a situation. I need an answer now. And God says, cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10. Let me read it one more time in case you missed it. Cease striving and know that I am God. Some of your translations say, be still and know that I am God. Be still doesn't cut it with me. It's not enough. Be still is good. Stop, pause, quiet yourself. But there's more to the language and it's very well expressed in this. Cease striving. I can be very, very still and be striving like crazy. I can sit down and and you can see my forehead begins to crinkle and strive because what's going on inside and all of my stillness is just... I'm striving. God says, don't just sit still. Stop striving. And know this fact. I am God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. I love this. Paul says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter, what Jeff D'Angelo would call blah, blah, blahs, the blah, blahs of the world. You know, what we do again is we panic, we freak out, and immediately go into fix-it mode, and we're looking for answers. And we're reading books, and we're talking to people, and blah, 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 and we're talking so loud we can't hear God's advice. Can't even hear a word from the Lord because we're just... Blah, 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 blah. And Paul says, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. You mean there's something out there called false knowledge? Yes, and it's called CNN. (laughs) It's called MSNBC. It's called Fox News. Oh, Rick, you just stepped on the conservative channel. Yes, I did. Do you realize how much absolutely empty chatter goes on on those channels? Now, I watch a couple of those because I want to keep up on the news and what's going on in the world. I think you should do that. However, it amazes me every now and then. I just got to turn it off because how many times are we going to talk about whether or not this guy is, is the right guy for the Supreme Court? 
frankly, I don't even know who you are, sir, so why am I listening to your opinion? As they go back and forth and back and forth. This whole thing, the latest thing, is the war, war in Iraq, of course it is, and the, and the bant and the, and the fighting back and forth about should we be there, should we pull out, pull out early, all this stuff. You know, and, and it's great to have an opinion about that, but the chatter is just endless. And it's exactly what I believe Paul is telling Timothy to avoid here. What's seemingly called knowledge, Paul says, avoid this. The worldly chatter, the opposing arguments, which some have professed, and he says, and then have gone astray from the faith. But what was it that Timothy was told to guard? Paul says, guard the trust. Guard that which has been entrusted to you. What's that, Paul? It's the Word. It's the Word of God. It's the word. Guard it, Timothy. Don't let it get set aside for the sake of the noisy chatter and the arguments with the false appearance of knowledge. We've got a new thing on the internet, blogging. You've read some of that. Now, there are good blogs. Andrew Campbell's blog when he was in Costa Rica. That was a good blog. Good blog. But there's an awful lot of blogs that are just blah, 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 blogs. That's all they are. Endless, empty, ridiculous chatter. And Paul says to Timothy, man, you guard the trust. Guard the trust. You guard the word of God. How do I do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Paul said, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also receive, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. Listen, if you hold fast the word that I preach to you. How do I guard the trust for that which has been entrusted to me by holding fast to the word of life? How does this apply here? You got a problem? You raise your hand and say, I got stuff going on. I have no idea what to do with it. And the immediate answer of the Lord would be, put the problem under guard and seek the Lord. Set it aside and come talk to me about it. Search out my word for answers that might have immediate application. I mean, you've got a choice. You can go one of two ways with this. You can put the problem under guard and seek the Lord, or you can dive headlong into empty and endless chatter. And the chatter will get you nowhere. It may get ratings for the news stations, but it will get you nowhere. So when an issue arises for the bridge, we've begun to learn this. We pray. The first thing we do is pray, pause, think about it, consider it, and we go to the Word. We pray, and we go to the Word. Your elders were doing this just last night, by the way. We had a meeting, and we were talking about some things, and, and discussing some things, and considering some things of, of great significance. Not just, you know, the typical stuff, should we buy some more blue chairs? I mean, that wasn't the discussion at all. It was time, most of the meeting was just spent in discussing an incredibly important spiritual issue for the Bridge Christian Fellowship. But the discussion happened, and this is why I love these guys so much, the discussion happened after, after the season of prayer. We pray first. Now I've been in, in leadership situations, it's very interesting, where the elders meeting starts where one person says a prayer, a real quick prayer, because you've got to open the meeting, blah, 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 thank you Lord, and you get on into the meeting, and then you discuss the things, and you seek the answers, you try and figure it out, and then you pray about it after the fact. We've discovered something here. I don't think we've discovered it. It's been known all along. Pray first. Pray first. Seek the Lord. Seek His wisdom. And then discuss it. And you will find the answers. The worst thing we can do is react. After all, nobody nobody likes a knee-jerk. Now, 
You might say, I don't understand why this guy was put to death. He didn't kill anybody. He just blasphemed. And I understand, Lord, I I, want to honor your name. I understand that that's a bad thing. But death? Death just because he cursed? Isn't that a little extreme? Listen closely for the context here. It explains a lot. Look again at verse 17. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good life for life. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. And thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good. In other words, restore a new animal to the person. But the one who kills a man... The one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native. For I, the Lord, am your God. The Lord makes it clear in his response to the people why this man deserves death. A couple of things you might want to jot down. The first one is that blasphemy is a form of murder. Blasphemy, when it comes to the name of God, is a form of murder. To profane his name, to curse his name, literally it butchers his name. It slaughters the name of God. It murders. Now this is interesting because the trivialization of the name of God is not only linked to murder spiritually or metaphorically. You could say, oh yeah, it's just killing God's name as a metaphorical way. There is a literal way in which the blasphemy of the name of God causes murder, brings about death. Acts 2.21, which is a quote of Joel 2.32, says it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Gang, when the awe-inspiring name, when God's precious name, that by nature invokes our salvation, is belittled, when it's demeaned, when it's undercut, when the one hope for a person's salvation is trivialized, death is the result. What do you mean? Hey, we play around with the name. He's Jesus' name just as a figure of speech. And after a while, what happens is what we have seen happen in our culture. God becomes trivialized. We say the way to salvation is by the name of Jesus Christ. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you say to someone, you want salvation? It begins by calling on the name of the Lord. And they're like... I call on his name all the time. (laughs) I use his name in everyday sentence. (laughs) Big deal. That's just a name, right? No, it's not just a name. It is your salvation. And when we demean the name, and all the way back here with Israel, God is setting a standard that is incredibly important. That his name is the name by which a person can be saved. And without his name, there's no salvation. No God to call out to, no salvation for the people calling. And so from the very early days, blasphemy is a form of murder. Somebody is going to die. The issue isn't just that God is offended. The issue is that those who hear the name made light of, punctured, blasphemed, will not call out the name to be saved, and they will die. Blasphemy is a form of murder. Now it may seem harsh that a man loses life for cursing God's name, but how much worse is it that a man or a woman loses their soul because the name was cursed? And that's God's 
That's God's main focus. That's His primary concern. Always has been, by the way. Always has been. Always will be. Back in the days of Israel, His primary, A number one concern, was the salvation of mankind. Because remember, it's going to be through Israel that the line of Christ is determined. And it's through this people, this people set aside, that Jesus would come into the world. God's concern has always been, and will always be, salvation. By the way, in this law of reciprocity, verses 17 through 22, that God repeats, that He's already given it to them. They've heard it before, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, fracture for fracture. There are a couple of other little principles here that are important to jot down. Some people read this and go, man, it just sounds like a law of revenge. Someone takes my eye, I take their eye. You take my tooth, I take your tooth. You hurt me, I will hurt you in the same way. In fact, I will hurt you back more. This law of reciprocity, gang, is not a law of revenge. It is actually a law of restraint. It's a law of restraint. For God, as He is beginning to tutor the people toward grace, down the line that would come through Jesus, He begins by saying, okay, instead of knocking a person's head in because he knocked out your tooth you can knock out a tooth but you stop there this far you may go and no further now this is important to understand because if someone knocks out my tooth my sin nature wants to take out his teeth (laughs) if someone hurts me in a a certain way you hit me in the eye I'm going to pop you on the skull not personally but my sin nature wants to react that way you take something that belongs to me I want to make you hurt for it That's the sin nature at work. And so God declares, this far you may go and no further. You lose a tooth by someone else's action, you may take a tooth. But stop. Stop there. Don't go any further. Gang, it's a precursor to grace. God is saying, watch your temper. You can only go so far. And by the way, if you are responding eye for eye, tooth for tooth, then you have to be under some degree of control, don't you? Because if you're hauling off and slugging someone back in the mouth, good luck just to take out one tooth. But chances are you can take out many. It's measured response. It's restraint. This is a law of restraint. Later on, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And Jesus would go much further than this. And by the way, this is where this law applies to us. We aren't under eye for eye, tooth for tooth. No, Jesus says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Turn the other cheek. The phrase is so worn in our culture, we almost don't even really think about what it means. It's almost made a silly phrase in our culture, but listen to the context. Jesus says to you, do not resist an evil person. In other words, if someone takes everything you have, let them have it. That's grace. (laughs) And we begin to understand that grace is a whole lot bigger, a whole lot more difficult to learn than a law, like the law of restraint. But it's also not just a law of restraint. It's also a law that recognizes relationship... It recognizes relationship. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Look at verse 19. This is interesting to me. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Huh. In other words, 
If I injure you, guess what? It injures me. It hurts me to hurt you. Now we can apply this and just say, oh, well, he's just talking about eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Yeah, but there's a much deeper spiritual application. If you hurt me, you're hurting yourself because you and I are connected here. Paul put it this way. He said in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member of the body suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You are Christ's body and individually members of it. So if I hurt Danny emotionally, as a friend, I cut him off, I say something, guess who else I hurt? Myself. I go away and now either I'm bitter toward him because I have to somehow justify my negative reaction or I'm feeling bad about it. This is amazing because it's very true, isn't it? You can't hurt someone without hurting yourself. Without walking away and having some kind of negative, bitter feeling that follows that early on we see an indication of this amazing thing that I am hurt by the very hurt that I dish out so Jesus says don't even resist evil someone comes after you someone hurts you don't respond don't act in that way recognize you are in relationship now before we finish I want to return to the main thought which we looked at earlier and that is that if you have something you're struggling with if you have a difficult decision a confusing question remember if you want God's will to work don't be a knee jerk place the situation under guard and seek the Lord now you may say but Rick what if I do this and I still make a wrong decision I mean let's ask the tough question I have a problem in my life I set it aside and I pray about it and I get some good Christian counsel about it and I seek the word and I think that I've got the right answer and I act on that answer what if it's wrong what if it doesn't work out listen to me if you take the situation and you put it under guard and you seek the Lord I'm going to give you an absolute guarantee you will not respond wrongly really? okay Verse 23 tells us that Moses spoke to the sons of Israel and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and they stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. I want you to hear this spiritual principle. It's extremely powerful and it's very true. God responded here decisively. The people put the man under guard. They went to the Lord. They sought him. Moses went up and God said, This is what you do. You take him out and you stone him. This is my will. So that when the people were actually acting on that will, picking up the stones and beginning to throw them, they could know beyond the shadow of a doubt, God ordained this. This was of the Lord. What about us? Here's what I'm trying to say. Anyone who places a tough call under the guard of the word and seeking the Lord will have a decisive answer. I am absolutely convinced of it. Well, why don't I then? Why don't I? Why do things go wrong? Probably because you didn't seek the will of the Lord. Well, I prayed about it on the way home in between just frustration and anger. Lord, I wish you could help me. Or people say, I don't know what the will of the Lord is. I just don't know. I wish I could know God's will. James chapter 1 verse 5 tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, listen to this, 
If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Or if you're so simple-minded, you really believe that? Yes, I do. (laughs) Yes, I do. If I will really seek the Lord, if I will give it to the Lord, I will have a decisive response. Oh, I don't know. That just seems so Pollyannish. Well, then Pollyanna had a great faith. (laughs) Jesus said this, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. God, I have a problem here. And I need a decisive answer. I don't know what to do with it. And by the way, until that decisive answer comes, you wait for it. And you wait for it, and you wait for it. And I promise you, no, I don't promise you. God promises you it will come. Your answer will come if you will wait on the Lord. Gang, seeking the Lord's answer may not always be the popular thing, and it may not always make sense, even what He has you do. And it may not be what you want to hear. Probably the greatest tragedy in my ministry life happened when I was a youth pastor in Fairfax, Virginia. And there was a young girl who was in our youth group and she was passionately involved and she loved the youth group and loved being there and she was funny and vivacious and she just was a kind of a hub of all the stuff going on. Her name was Aisha. And Aisha was an incredible actress and she was involved in the Washington, D.C. School of, of Dramatic Arts where she met a young man who was highly and... and Dynamically, I guess, involved in the nation of Islam. At that time, at least in Washington, D.C., there was a huge draw for young black kids to the nation of Islam. And so she began hanging out with this guy and talking to him. And, she, and he began to fill her head full of confusions. And one of the primary confusions he had her on was the idea of the Trinity. This idea that of a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's not true. That's, that's something Christians made up. That's not the way it really is. There's really only one true God. The Old Testament even says, you know, Hero Israel, the name, the name of the Lord is one. Our God is one. Of course, he didn't know that the Hebrew word for one is in the plural form of the word. But she began coming to me and saying, I just don't know if I can believe in the Trinity. Now, I'm a young youth pastor at the time, and I didn't know how to explain the Trinity. I just believed because that's what I knew. That's what I'd always been taught. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's the deal. And I had to start going, well, is Jesus really God? I think so. Hang on, let me get back to you. And it was hard. And I watched Aisha fall, excuse me, fall into the hands of a guy who, man, he knew what to say. He knew the right words. And I will never forget the Sunday morning when she came up to me and she said, I don't think I can believe this concept of the Trinity. And I said something to her that I believe now and I believe it even more. I believe it then, I believe it even more now. I said, Aisha, I'm obviously not giving you the right answers. I'm I'm studying myself to try and bring this to you the right way. But if you will really seek the Lord on this, if you will pray to Him and ask Him to show you and you will remain open to Him, He will show you the truth here. The problem is, by that time she didn't want to hear it anymore. She was too enamored. 
And we lost her. And to this day, that bothers me. In fact, if you ever want to know, part of the reason why I'm so passionate about knowing and teaching the Word of God is because I did not have the answer at a time that was critical that I needed to have the answer. Jesus says in John 15-16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. Lord, I don't know what to do. Will you tell me what to do? Ask Him. Ask Him. And wait for Him. Put it under guard and seek the Lord. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And in case you didn't know this or hadn't heard this before, the word ask, the word seek, and the word knock in that sentence in the Greek are literally keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. It's a continual process. And Jesus says, For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Oh, well, yeah, but that's that's just kind of religious talk. No! Either you buy the words of Jesus Christ, or you don't. And if you buy his words, if you believe what he says, he says if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, you will have your answer. You can count on it. Why would he lead you in a direction... Why would he promise you something and then not bring it? Listen to what else he says in the same passage. Matthew chapter 7 verse 9. For what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Now, this was fun a few months ago. I I told Hannah to come on upstairs. We're going to have fish for dinner. And I got the plate out, and it was all set up, and she came in and and sat down. And underneath the kitchen counter, under under the sink, in a little can with a lid and little air holes poked in it, I had a snake. (laughs) This was great. And when she wasn't looking, I opened up the lid. You guys are going to think I'm nuts. That's okay. I'm just, I'm truthful. Opened up the lid, pulled out the snake, and plopped it on the plate for her. And she screamed and ran. No, I didn't do that. You think I am crazy? I would not do something like that. Because I'm a dad. And Jesus says, and I just want you to see the ridiculousness and the humor in what Jesus is saying. Because he said, if your son, if your child says, Dad, can we have fish tonight? How many of you would be sick enough to pull a snake out and drop it on the plate? There you go. (laughs) Isn't that funny? How many people would offer a stone when your child is hungry for bread? Jesus says that's absolutely ridiculous. That's off the charts ridiculous. And then by contrast he says, If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? By the way, you want to know what is good? Jesus says, how much more will the Father in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Well, what is good, Lord? Luke takes us a bit further in these words of Jesus. Luke eleven thirteen, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What does that mean? That means that we can have, in response to our questions, in response to our struggles, we can have the Spirit of the living God 
indwelling, teaching, telling us what to do. You really believe that, Rick? I really believe that. I really do. We set it aside. We put it under guard. We wait and we go seek the Lord. And if we will approach Him in this way, He will respond. And we have something of the Spirit of Jesus, gang, that nobody could have any other way. This is stunning and wonderful. Last verse. And don't miss this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Now listen. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we, we have the mind of Christ. God, I don't know what to do. Father, I am confused. Lord, life is completely out of my control right now. What do I do, Lord? You have the mind of Christ. You have the Spirit of God who will respond if you will listen to Him. If you will take it to Him. Father in Heaven, I pray, Lord, that tonight You would give us the faith to hand this over to You. You magnificently and wonderfully, Lord, hear each one of our hearts individually as if we were alone with You in this barn right now, one-on-one, and You promise to give good things. Literally, Father, You promise to give Your Holy Spirit to those who ask. You promise to give wisdom generously to those who ask. You promise to write Your Word on our hearts and in our minds. You promise that it will be done for us if we will seek You in faith. And so, Father, I pray, crying out, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Father, the area in our lives where we need the work of the Spirit more than anywhere else is the area of faith. That we might truly trust and believe that You will do as You said You would do. Father, for my friends and family here and for myself tonight, we just want to offer up to you whatever problem or frustration, family difficulty, conflict, Lord, we want to just hand this to you. Saying, Father, tonight we do not know what to do, but we believe that you have the words of life. And so we bring this to you because there's nowhere else that we can go for the truth, for the answer. God, we praise your name, we glorify and honor your name, we uphold your name, we know that your name is the one name that truly saves. May each time, Father, that we open our mouths to speak your name, may we do so with praise on our lips and your glory in our hearts. Father, as we go away tonight, I pray that we go away in faith. Give us the patience to wait for you and to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.